Enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. obsession with astronomy, I'm also a huge fan of languages. I can't really speak any apart from English, but I've studied a lot of them, so I guess I'm more of a fan of linguistics than I am learning an actual new language. I'll take a few minutes of your time before diving into our astronomy adventure for the day to touch on a term I'm going to throw around kind of incorrectly. The word henge is kind of a mess to define, and I'm going to complicate it further because this episode isn't going to look at just henges. There are a lot of structures that fall under the definition of henge, and other words that describe the same sort of thing. If you're talking about late Neolithic earthworks enclosures found in Britain, you could use the word cromlech, which is a combination of the Welsh words for bowed or arched and a flat stone. So it's describing the doorway shape that sometimes appears in stone circles. Well, really only appears in one stone circle. Stonehenge. The word henge comes from the Anglo-Saxon word hengen, meaning hinged or hanging, because the stone doorways in Stonehenge looked like the gibbets where people were hung. If you don't know what a gibbet is, just imagine the little drawing that you do when you're playing hangman, and you'll know what a gibbet looks like. Awkwardly, Stonehenge isn't actually a true henge, though the word henge came to be used because of Stonehenge's appearance. Stonehenge doesn't have a continuous ditch that's only broken up with entrances. Instead, it has a ditch of linked segments. Really, though, Kromlech and henge are just shorthand for stone circle, and even that's not entirely accurate because a lot of the things that are called henges are egg-shaped or sort of rectangular, There are tons of stone circles in Britain, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, and the French region of Brittany. One of these things is not like the others, but Brittany was a place that had a lot of cultural exchange with Britain, so it makes kind of sense. I mean, it's called Brittany. Britain. There's got to be some crossover there. I guess it would make sense to start off talking about Stonehenge from here, but I'm going to hold off for a little bit. The odds are that most people have heard of Stonehenge. It's very cool. I've been there on a lovely summer's day. I saw the modern druids in their Winnebago's, or the British equivalent of a Winnebago. They were waiting for midsummer so they could do whatever rituals they do on that day, but I don't want to talk only about henges. A henge is just one example of a structure that ancient civilizations built to... Well, that's just it. We don't really know. We can make informed guesses, we can come up with intriguing theories based on math and measurements, but records are gone. Some civilizations never developed a written language. Some are so ancient that whatever records they had didn't survive. Some had their records destroyed by invading cultures. 
The study of these mysterious ancient astronomical sites and the attempt to understand their purpose is called archaeoastronomy. It's closer to an anthropological study than it is to history, because history is based on stories that have been told, and we don't really have that to go off of. It isn't really necessary to build massive monuments that connect the sky, the earth, and a community, but I'll be talking today about all the different kinds of massive monuments that civilizations have built because they are very, very cool. The archaeoastronomer Clive Ruggles explains this motivation to build, saying, quote, Generally, people in indigenous cultures in the past tried to make sense of the cosmos, of the world around them, by drawing links between things. Things in the sky, things around them in the landscape, and social things too, all mixed in. Let's take a trip to a canyon just a hundred miles southeast of the Four Corners, the place where the states of Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, and Colorado all meet. The canyon, Chaco Canyon, is in New Mexico, kind of at a central point amid several surrounding American Indian reservations, Navajo and Hopi to the west, Ute to the north, Apache to the east, and Pueblo and Zuni to the south. In Chaco Canyon, there are rocks inscribed with petroglyphs, which are a specific kind of rock art, rock symbols. They're images that are made by chipping off the dark desert patina of a rock to expose the pale stone underneath. The petroglyphs in Chaco Canyon depict various celestial phenomena, from simple images of the sun and the moon and the stars, to some petroglyphs that archaeoastronomers have interpreted as eclipses, Halley's Comet, and a supernova that happened in 1054 CE. Oral traditions of contemporary Pueblo American Indians have helped flesh out Chacoan astronomy, and many seasonal ceremonies and traditions are still practiced by Southwest American Indian tribes today, but some aspects of ancient Chacoan culture are still guesswork. In Chaco Canyon, there is a butte. These are like small mesas. They're flat-topped, they're tall, they kind of just jut out of the land pretty randomly. This one's called Fajada Butte. At the winter and summer solstices and the vernal and autumnal equinoxes, light shines between three rocks placed at the summit of the butte, sending what have been described as sun daggers, or bright beams of light, onto spiral carvings on the rock of Chaco Canyon. There are hollowed-out steps in Fajada Butte that lead to a split in the rock that has been carved wider to get a good view of where the sun sets at midwinter. A ranger at Chaco Canyon, G.B. Cornucopia, which is a hell of a name, <laughs> says that, quote, one of the Chacoan people's tools was certainly astronomy, and they were interested in astronomy because anyone living in this harsh environment who does not understand their environment will not survive. By the way, I'm getting all of this out of a book I was given that I think is supposed to be some kind of coffee table book, but I'm young and socialist and don't have a coffee table, so I read it instead. And let me tell you, the pictures are gorgeous. If you can get your hands on a copy of Heather Cooper and Nigel Henbest's book, The History of Astronomy, I highly recommend it. Not just for the pictures, but oh, they are stunning. Beyond being a site for astronomical art and a possibly a record of unusual celestial phenomena, and beyond that butte, Chaco Canyon also contains some of the oldest examples of American Indian settlements. Typically, because the area around the Four Corners is a desert, any tribes that lived in the area were nomadic. 
Around 1000 CE, though, the ancient tribe that settled in Chaco Canyon built houses using sandstone chunks fitted tightly together to build the walls and using wood that has since rotted away as the roofs. These great houses are mazes of small rooms and kivas, which are rooms used for religious and political meetings and are still used by modern Hopi and Pueblo peoples today. The Chaco kivas are recognizable because they are sunk into the ground, so the walls are level with the ground itself. But these structures are up to four stories tall. A single building can be four acres big, with 600 to 800 rooms in it. The current estimate for the Chaco Canyon resident population is between 1,000 and 6,000 people, but the great houses have plenty more room because Chaco Canyon was a hub of trade and culture as well as astronomy. The most astronomically significant building is Pueblo Bonito, set amid cliffs with a stepped shape to their edge. The person that held the position of sun chief would come out of Pueblo Bonito, maybe consult the stone that has an engraved petroglyph of the step pattern in the cliff, and then the sun chief would tick off autumn months as the sun set behind each step in the cliff. On October 29th, the setting sun began to shine through an unusual diagonally placed window in Pueblo Bonito, shining a light on the opposite wall. This shift of the sun indoors was probably to protect the sun chief from checking on the sun's position out in the cold during the winter months. As the light moved across the wall, it would land on a protruding buttress on the winter solstice, so you knew exactly when the longest day of the year was. The position of sun chief is one that appears in a lot of cultures, including Hopi, Zuni, and Pueblo traditions today, though the names and responsibilities may vary. In the past, in Chaco Canyon, this role was significant because the sun chief had the responsibility of declaring when to plant crops, as well as determine the timing of months and rituals. By observing the sun's relation to natural earthly monuments, they could ensure that crops would not be hit by a sudden frost, or people would begin farming too early or too late. Contemporary Native American societies don't always use the natural landscape to track the sun's position. In the 1980s, scholar S.E. McCluskey describes how a Hopi sun chief said that he, quote, began watching when the sun went in near the cultural center and motel on Second Mesa. Depending on how well you know me, you might be surprised at how many times I've managed to tell people that little factoid. Okay, so we visited New Mexico. Let's drop down souther and easter, not the holiday, I mean more east, and uh, check out in actual Mexico some ancient Maya astronomy sites in the southeastern peninsula, the Yucatan state of Mexico. I took some screenshots of all of these archaeological sites I mentioned, by the way, so you can check out those along with all my other delicious resources at, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. The Maya city of Chichen Itza, which means at the mouth of the well of the Itza people, was one of the largest Maya cities, first built between 600 and 900 CE. It has a lot of really significant constructions designed to interact with the sun, stars, and moon. They don't blend with the land or make use of the environment the way that the Pueblo observatories did in Chaco Canyon, though. We also have a major advantage when it comes to Maya astronomy. Well, more of a mixed blessing. <laughs> when Spanish missionaries came to Chichen Itza around 1519, following the conquistadores, they took all of the Maya astronomy observations, all of their books and literature and scientific records, and they burned them. 
Only four bark books survived this annihilation, and we get a sense from those books of how precise and intense the Maya people were about astronomical observations. You'd never guess the depth of their observations of Venus or the fact that they ran three calendars simultaneously just by looking at their architecture. We lose a lot when all we have to go off of is the big stuff. It's still very cool stuff, though, so I'll mention a couple things at Chichen Itza. So the biggie is El Castillo, or the castle, which you can picture in your head probably because it's a massive step pyramid. It has nine platforms and stairs running up each of its four sides, 91 steps to a side, for 365 total stairs when you add the top flat platform to the total. A calendar year on the step pyramid. <laughs> Even cooler, though, is that at the vernal and autumnal equinoxes, the setting sun casts a shadow on the side of the north staircase that looks like a writhing checkered snake aimed at a pair of snakehead carvings at the base of the stairs. <laughs> this sounds super metal. <laughs> it would be really cool to see this someday. Also at Chichen Itza is a little thing called Caracal, or the snail, which is a really cute word. Um, it's an observatory, and the inside is a maze of passages, windows, and narrow openings that line up with significant astronomical events, like the summer solstice, and the northernmost and southernmost risings and settings of the moon and Venus. I'm throwing around words like solstice and equinox, and I feel like I should explain a little bit of what I mean. So, the Earth orbits the Sun. It takes 365 days to go around the Sun completely. The Earth is also spinning in its own orbit, uh, which makes, you know, the days happen. And the axis of that orbit is tilted. Imagine your head is the Earth. Now, tip your head about 23.5 degrees. Yeah, get out a protractor. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Just tip your head and imagine you're an owl and can spin your head around like a record. Um... The top of your head is the top of the world, and your chin is Antarctica. As the Earth orbits the sun, the top of it turns closer towards the sun, and then as it keeps moving, your face would go towards the sun, and then as it keeps moving, your chin would go towards the sun, and then as it keeps moving, the back of your head would go towards the sun, and uh, so on and so on as you go through the years. It's this change in the Earth's tilt towards or away from the sun that causes the seasons to change. It's also why Alaska and Iceland and parts of Russia and all of those kind of Nordic zones have days of incomplete brightness and entirely dark days, depending on the time of the year. All right, so the Earth's axis is tilted. It makes it look like the sun changes positions in the sky by 23.5 degrees in either direction. If you're on the equator during an equinox, which happens in late March or September, and you can Google when they're actually supposed to occur, the sun will be directly overhead at noon, and your shadow will be completely under you. That's less true the further away from the equator you are, but it stays true that this day is a day when the amount of sunlight is exactly equal to the amount of nighttime that you get. The opposite is true during the solstices. These are the points when the sun appears to rise the furthest north or south of true east, where the sun is actually supposed to rise. So on mid midwinter, which is in December... The sun rises and sets as far south of east as it will ever go. This is also the shortest day of the year, with more nighttime hours than daylight. On midsummer, in late June, the sun rises and sets as far north of east as it ever will, and the day is longer than the night. 
So when I was talking about the, the rising point of the sun at midwinter back in Chaco Canyon and all of these different rising locations that you can observe in Caracol, I mean that it looks like the sun rises and sets from different positions near east, but not directly east, except on equinoxes, when it's as close to east as it can get. All right, we can talk about Stonehenge now. It's been nice to talk about ancient astronomical sites that people actually know something about, but we have to shift gears here because we don't really know what Stonehenge is for. There are some truly wild theories, and I love them, but we're going back to before written records survived, or oral traditions, so all we have to go on is tests we can do and guesses we can make based on architecture. Stonehenge is over 4,000 years old, constructed in the chalk uplands of southern England over a period of a thousand years. <laughs> it's made of 55-ton stones shaped to fit together with precision joints, like the ones that carpenters might use. It's from these joints that Stonehenge gets its name. They're stone hinges, get it? It's Old English. Hinge sounded like henge at the time. It's also, as I talked about earlier, kind of possibly coming from the idea of Stonehenge looking like a gibbet. There's a lot of different names for henges, but they all kind of originate from people looking at Stonehenge and trying to describe what it looked like. The smaller stones in Stonehenge came all the way from Wales, which is over 135 miles from the site of Stonehenge. The one astronomically significant thing that archaeoastronomers can agree on is that the sun rises above the heel stone, a rock that's outside the actual circle of stones, on midsummer. Boom. That's all we can know for sure. And it's what modern druids come to celebrate in parties that are increasingly limited because no one wants you carving you and your SO's name on a fucking ancient megalith. Please stop doing that. What is wrong with you? It's not adorable. It's awful. Stonehenge had to be renovated in the 1950s because assholes had been shipping pieces off for souvenirs. Take nothing but memories, okay? All right, the conceptual idea for Stonehenge was present starting in 31,000 BCE. By 2950 BCE, it was Earthhenge, or a big circular ditch with an entrance that led to where the heelstone is now, towards the midsummer sunrise. By 2700 BCE, it was Timberhenge. 56 posts were erected and rotted away over time, leaving their holes behind, as well as all of the detritus stuffed in there as offerings. The offerings actually mostly show up in the northeast and southeast directions, roughly the most northerly rising and setting points of the moon. That's all we know for sure, folks. You can measure and draw correlations till the cows come home, but we have no clue what Stonehenge did, except for the midsummer thing. It was kind of just a big statement piece. Homo sapiens were nomadic for a long time, and settling down to a farming lifestyle was a massive change in our species in a ton of ways, from mental to physical, but also in terms of development. Building something big and heavy that took generations to completely construct was a statement. We're here to stay. And Stonehenge has stayed for the most part. It's going to stay for the foreseeable future, too, and the hilarious reason it's staying is because of a guy named Sir Cecil Chubb. That is Chubb with two Bs. <laughs> he fucking bought Stonehenge at an auction in 1915 for £6,000. It had been privately owned since medieval times, specifically owned by the Antrobus family since the early 19th century. But when the Antrobus hare died in World War I, 
it was part of the estate that went up for sale. Sir Chubb. Uh, he had been sent by his wife to buy some chairs, but he bought Stonehenge on a whim, and his wife was pissed. He owned it for three years, and then he handed it over to the nation of England in 1918, with some conditions. The entrance fee could never be over a shilling or five pence, and local residents got in for free. He also got a knighthood out of it, hence why I keep calling him Sir Chubb, and his condition stands true today. Stonehenge isn't the only big circle of stones in the world. Other megalithic astronomical alignment monuments, aren't you glad henge is a word? Other major henges are at Callanish off the coast of Scotland and at Karnak in Brittany. Stonehenge is really only extra cool because it has stones from far away and has doorway shapes instead of just a bunch of uprights and lie downs. That's, that's not a technical term for these rocks, by the way. Um, probably. Actually, who knows with archaeoastronomers? My point is, Stonehenge is cool, but it's not that cool. I did visit it, though. Want to know what other cold, wet, ancient, astronomically significant site I visited? Newgrange. Newgrange is in Ireland, in the Boyne Valley, which, like most of Ireland, had some people living there a long time ago. Newgrange was built in 3200 BCE. So it's the oldest thing I've talked about in this podcast. And it's a tomb for a chief. It's a big circular building? Kind of a cave, but not really. It's actually a bit like a kiva, though obviously these two buildings are from very different cultures and very far apart. It's been fixed up, too, like Stonehenge, because people came and visited, walking through the long passageway into the tomb where the rising sun shines on a few days around midwinter, if you can, you know, see the sun at all. It is Ireland, and it is midwinter. And they fucking carved their names in Newgrange, too. They did this hundreds of years ago, because people are people, um, so it was actually kind of cool to touch century-old graffiti all covered in moss. Still don't mess with ancient monuments, though. God, just... Be polite. <laughs> so all of archaeoastronomy and study of cultures and their relationship with outer space is incredible stuff, but a lot of the same principles can apply to modern constructions as well, because a lot of American cities are built on a grid system with tall buildings and narrow streets. There are times of the year when the rising or setting sun will be visible between the buildings. An example is in Manhattan. Twice a year, the setting sun lines up with the street grid. And Neil deGrasse Tyson describes the, quote, radiant glow of light across Manhattan's brick and steel canyons, simultaneously illuminating both the north and south sides of every cross street of the borough's grid. A rare and beautiful sight. These two days happen to correspond with Memorial Day and baseball's all-star break. Future anthropologists might conclude that, via the sun, the people who called themselves Americans worshipped war and baseball, end quote. God, I can only hope that's not our legacy. It's something to think about, though, when we're talking about archaeoastronomy. Ed Krupp, who's an astronomer with Griffiths University, says, quote, Usually monumental architecture isn't dedicated to observing the sky. Well, that's great, Ed. I guess I wasted a podcast. Nah, I never waste a podcast. <laughs> he continues, 
Quote, it's a way that people express how they feel at home in the universe, but also how they control the universe. Okay, well, now this is the sickest podcast ever. I talked about ancient universe control techniques from England to Mexico to New Mexico to Manhattan. That's awesome. Deciphering the monuments left behind by other civilizations, using records and oral traditions to piece it together, it gets you somewhere. I think it's incredibly valuable to talk about the past and what people thought about the world and their place in it. You can get a whole new perspective on modern society by considering what it would mean if we were judged based solely on what we've built that'll last. Okay, a summary of what we learned today. Henges and Kromlichs are only one type of astronomical tracking and observation monument. Other kinds include using big rocks that already exist, and then building something close enough to observe this interaction with the sun, like in Chaco Canyon. Another kind is building an observatory, like Caracol, or a really big pyramid, like El Castillo, both in Chichen Itza, Mexico. Sometimes you build something that interacts with the sun in a very quiet, private way, like Newgrange in Ireland. Other times, it's a big heap of strange rocks in the middle of the chalk uplands of England. Hello, Stonehenge! We can't know for sure what all these buildings meant, or even if they meant anything, apart from just being as permanent a fixture as a civilization could create. Thinking about it is a wild adventure, though. From here, I'm thinking about talking about planets, or I could probably start talking about star classifications. A book came in for me at the library about Henrietta Swan Leavitt that I'm really looking forward to digging into, between all of my comics and the fantasy books I still have to read. You can let me know what you think I should research by sending me an ask on the website what you're curious about. You can also tweet at me at HD in the Void. I'll answer that as well. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy and space. All of it lifts my barbells. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to lift your barbells too. Tune in on June 5th for whatever I end up researching next. As always, sources, music credits, a vocab list, and the script are available at, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD, signing off.